Booker has more than 12 years of archival experience. He's developed both in both in the private and public sectors. And in his current role as manager of heritage communications at the Coca-Cola Company, he's responsible for managing the historical collections of the Coca-Cola Company, including over 100,000 artifacts, historical documents, and memorabilia in both physical and electronic formats. So it's a very large collection. He also creates digital and social media content and communications for the company's online channels and is a regular contributor to um, Coca-Cola Conversations, which is a, their blog, and also Coca-Cola Journey, which is the company's digital magazine and website. So he came to the Coca-Cola company in 2005 from the Georgia Archives, uh, where he served as a records management analyst and reference archivist. And prior to that, he was employed at the Maryland State Archives in Annapolis, Maryland where he researched the Underground Railroad uh, for the State Commission to coordinate the study, commemoration, and impact of slavery's history and legacy in Maryland. So Jamal has contributed efforts to several grant-funded research initiatives, including the National Historic Publications and Records Commission's Electronics Record Technologies Project called Preserving Georgia's Historical Data, a Case Study in Preserving the Historical Electronic Records of Georgia Government. Man, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and Beneath the Underground, the Flight of Freedom and Antebellum Communities in Maryland from 1830 to 1860, which was supported by the National Park Service and the Department of Education. Jamal holds a BA in Economics with a minor in African American Studies from Morehouse College. So we welcome Jamal. Good morning, everyone, and uh, let me apologize again for the de delay this morning. Um, hopefully, it will be worthwhile to you. Um, but yes, please do let me know uh, when I've got five minutes just so I don't uh, take you guys too far. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what we do uh, in the Coke archives and how we sort of support um, the Coca-Cola Company's diversity mission uh, from a historical standpoint. Um, and I will begin doing that by just talking a little bit about um, Coca-Cola. So it's a brand that is sold everywhere in the world. And um, the interesting thing about it is it's one brand, one idea, and it's sort of seen through the lens of wherever you are in the world. So in South Africa, Coke means something to them locally. And in Japan, it means something to them locally. But it's the same product wherever you go. So there's sort of a different lens on the same product everywhere you go. And just sort of a funny story, um, I was in the cab in uh, New Orleans a month back, and my cab driver was actually from Liberia. And I told him I worked for Coke, and he said, you know, when I was growing up, we just loved Coca-Cola so much, and we had no idea that it was anywhere else because the plant was local, and we used to get Coke locally, and we saw local Coke marketing. He didn't even know Coke was in the United States until he came to the U.S., so the interesting thing about that is you sort of have, you know, different populations that Coke is serving, and the marketing is very locally re relevant to each of those populations. Um, so what we do in the archives is we collect the history of the company, um, and history meaning all facets, so the facts as well as the advertising as well, the print ads, the physical items as well, so the bottles, the cans, the television commercials, a lot of digital media, also dating all the way back to the founding of the company in 1886. What I want to talk about today specifically is how we align with the company's diversity mission. Coca-Cola's diversity mission is to mirror the rich diversity of the marketplace we serve. Diversity is at the heart of our business, and we see diversity as more than just policies and practices. It's an integral part of who we are as a company and how we operate. As a global business, our ability to understand, embrace, and operate in a multicultural world, both in the marketplace and in the workplace, is critical to our long-term sustainability. So there's a few stories I'll tell you today about how we've activated Coke's history of diversity through social media and online. And this year, during Black History Month, we had a, just one case study that I'll share with you as well. Um, so when Coke was first uh, put in the market, it was just in Atlanta in a local soda fountain. And um, so the market wasn't as diverse as it is today. So most of the advertising sort of looked like this. So just, you know, southern women drinking Coca-Cola. From there, though, 
it got very local. So as the brand started to grow in different countries and different markets, it got very locally relevant. And we started to try to figure out how do we actually speak locally to consumers. So this is an ad from 1934 from Winnipeg, Canada, and it's actually in Yiddish. So this is when we launched the uh, six-pack in Canada, and we actually spoke to that community of um, citizens who actually spoke Yiddish. So that's one newspaper ad. And then this is a wall sign as well from Canada that has some Yiddish in there. So how do we celebrate these um, stories? So these are the kinds of stories that we have in the archives. So how, how do we celebrate them? We do a lot of it in social media. So if you were to look at this ad, if anybody just would give a guess, which country would you think that this is from? Yeah, someone said Korea. It actually, the language on there is actually Chinese, but it's actually from the United States. This is an ad that was actually done in 1936 for Chinatowns in America. And so this is the kind of thing that we celebrate. So we did a blog post about this particular ad, um, which is called Chinatown. Um, and so in the 30s is when Coke really started to focus specifically on those different consumers to make sure advertising featured different consumers, different ethnicities in those neighborhoods. And so in the 1950s, we've got a lot of examples like this in our archives. So the ad on the left was sort of what we refer to as a quote-unquote general market ad, which would have went out to the entire United States or any sort of European countries. And then what we started to do was to get uh, local models and local, cele local celebrities to actually appear in Coke advertising that more represented the local culture. So the one on the right is actually from China. So it's the same idea, it's the same brand, it's the same thought. However, it's sort of spoken in a local language to make sure that it's relevant to the audience. Um, so we actually... Um, on our website, which is called Coca-Cola Journey, we work with a lot of external writers. And um, for a story about this type of advertising, we actually reached out to a lady named Brenna Greer. She is a Ph.D. Uh, history professor from uh, Wellesley College. And she was actually studying Coca-Cola advertising and how diversity was in Coca-Cola advertising. So we actually got her as a third-party source to actually write about you know, this series of ads and how Coke sort of celebrated diversity through our advertising beginning in the 1950s. So on the left, again, is a general market ad, and on the right, this is an African-American woman. Again, same product, same concept, same idea, but, you know, locally relevant to the consumers there. Uh, we also do this on Facebook as well. So we've got a Facebook page, and we put this picture up on um the day the movie 42, which is about Jackie Robinson, came out. Um, on that day, on uh, January 20th, 1956, Coke actually sponsored an event in the African-American community that brought together uh, Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey and some of the early African-American baseball players to give them actually an award um, for their courage. And so, again, we we're just sort, sort of showing that Coca-Cola has been a part of the community, celebrating diversity, not just in the 90s and the 2000s, but really all the way back to the 1950s. So we do this in uh, Facebook as well. So one interesting um, story this year was um, the Cannes Lion Awards. So Coca-Cola actually received an award for a Creative Marketer of the Year, which is sort of one of the biggest awards the company has ever received. And so the vice president of advertising sent an email to the archives department, you know, trying to see the point that they were trying to make was the fact that Coca-Cola is has embraced diversity, you know, throughout the years and that we've celebrated diversity in our advertising. So he asked us if we had any examples of how we've done that because he wanted to use that as part of his feature presentation. And what we shared with him was a video that um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in, which celebrated the first African-American model that appeared in Coke advertising in 1955. Um, so when he came to us with that question, we thought it would just be sort of a fact, one of many that he would actually just mention in his presentation. And what turned out was that he actually used this as a centerpiece of his presentation. And I'm just going to show you 
a little video clip from that presentation. So this is at the uh, Can Lion International Creativity Festival. This is a keynote address, and this is what um, Ivan Pollard, who runs Coke's social media, and Jonathan Mildenhall, the vice president of advertising, actually um, spoke about. So we'll play this video. So our sound guy left as soon as this came on. All right, well, we'll come back to it. I think we'll have a few complaints about the uh, AV <laughs> after this presentation. So let's try it one more time. So simply put, we believe that we can be doing well by doing good. We believe in work that matters. Now, though we articulated this at Canline just two years ago, it's something the company has always believed in. So we want to talk about how we're going to go about doing that today by illuminating how we've done it in the past. To be fair to our forefathers, work that matters at the Coca-Cola company is really nothing new. In fact, the story that we're going to share with you today started in 1955, and it began with a lady called Mary Alexander. That was the year that the Coca-Cola company decided to put the first African-American woman Coca-Cola advertising. So think about it, 1955. That was the very same year that Rosa Parks, a lady who went on to be known as the first lady of the American Civil Rights Movement, refused to give up her seat to a fellow white passenger when the white section of the bus was full. What happened after that was a 381-day bus boycott that was organized by Dr. Martin Luther King. So given the social context at the time, the idea that the Coca-Cola company would put an African-American lady uh, as the face of Coca-Cola was quite a radical move. And what I'd like to do now is actually introduce you to Mary Alexander by playing this wonderful film that was created by a guy called Jamal Booker, who is one of our brilliant archivists in Atlanta. And this is his film about his meeting with Mary Alexander. I love history and I love research. In general, there's always sort of a story in, in terms of my work. So there's always pieces to the story, but the whole thing is never laid out. So there's always some detective work that you have to do. So the biggest part for me is not just finding the first model, but finding that the first model is Mary Alexander, who's an amazing woman. During the 50s and coming forward, you did not see a lot of African Americans modeling for any company. I went for the interview, and there were about 75 other girls there. And I was frightened half to death. I was really afraid. Because when I walked in the room and I saw 75 other girls, I said, Lord, why am I here? I shouldn't be here. So I went back to my room and I cried. So a couple of days later, she came to me and said, Miss Kowser, you are now going to mom for Coca-Cola. So he would shake his head and he'd look and didn't say very much, and I'm just talking to my own minute. And uh, I said, well, maybe I'll show him the check that I received. So at this last session, they gave me a $600 check. And that was more money than I had ever seen in my life. $600 check. 
1955. And I believe that was a lot of money for my dad to see. When I showed him that check, he said, $600 for taking your picture? I said, yes, Dad. He said, well, you can do it. He was very happy. And I told him, Dad, I can pay my tuition for my senior year with the $600 check. He said, I will allow you then to go on and do this. She was sort of this um, shy student who didn't want to go to do a coke ad. Once she was selected to do the coke ad, it's almost like from that point she felt like she could do anything. So she went on to be the first African-American teacher in her school district and the first African-American principal in her school district. So after 1955, it's like trailblazing was just part of what she did. All the ads that Mary Alexander was featured in were families. It was sort of the first time African-Americans saw themselves and family in advertising. So to say, well, there have been billboards for years that had, you know, a certain family on there, but now I'm included. We're as American as apple pie. And here's our family. We are as American as apple pie. So that was uh, that was sort of a shock to us when we sent it to him. We were just sort of sending it to him um, just as an FYI. This is something that we had did. But from a company standpoint, they sort of embraced it and used it as a centerpiece in their presentation. Um, so that was uh, one example. And so you see here, this is the bottle that they created for that event. And it starts with saying, work that matters at Coca-Cola began with Mary. So this is something that the archives department brought forward. And um, they sort of linked that all the way up to the advertising that we're doing today for diverse audiences. Um, also in that same presentation, something that uh, we had in the archives that they used was this ad, uh, which is from 1969. So if you think about it in context, uh, we all know about 1963, 50 years ago, and then the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 68. This is sort of a segregated bench that um, we had black kids and white kids sort of sitting together on. So in the context of time, that was a really important diversity statement. And they also featured this at the CAN presentation as well. Um, and then the other one that they showed was actually this video um, from 1971, which is a Hilltop commercial. Uh, just a 60-second commercial, which I'll show you, but it really speaks to sort of the diversity of the brand Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Again, the idea is just diverse audiences all sort of coming together around this one idea, which is Coca-Cola. So supported and what the brand is and also supported from the archives department for the company. Um, one more piece to talk about is sort of this case study that we got into this past uh, year around Black History Month and uh, Martin Luther King Day. Um, so I wrote a story for Coca-Cola Journey, which was kind of from my personal perspective as sort of an African-American historian and a historian of the soda fountain industry, you know, the question of why so many civil rights um, protests actually took place at soda fountains, which is sort of the heart of where Coca-Cola's business is. Um, so we wrote that in January, and I found this picture as I was doing my research. And the interesting thing is if you look above Martin Luther King to the left, there's a Coca-Cola sign there. Um, so this is him leaving uh, Rich's department store, one of his first sit-ins uh, in Atlanta. And it, it sort of bothered me a little bit to see that Coke sign there. But 
as I got into my research, what I found was that um, Coke was available everywhere. So in the time when it wasn't really pop popular for com businesses to be in African-American communities, Coke was actually there. So as part of doing my story, the lady in the middle, um, I actually researched her, and her name is uh, Marilyn Price Hoyt. She's a young lady from Tuskegee, Alabama. She was a student at Spelman College at the time, and I was just sort of asking her about this day and the event, and she started telling me about her history growing up drinking Coca-Cola, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, so where she was from in Tuskegee, there were some soda fountains which were segregated, which she was not allowed to actually sit down at, but her parents wouldn't allow her to go to those soda fountains because they didn't want to feel, make her feel sort of less than human. So she said is what she did was went to the local soda fountains in her own African-American communities, which served Coke as well. So what I found out was that Coke wasn't, you know, just sort of on one side, but Coke sort of wants to have everybody there. And so when we dug into her story a little bit, um, she actually wrote a blog post for us on her um, Coke history and her, her sort of growing up with Coke. And one of the things that I will quote is she said, members of my family have a long history with soda fountains and Coca-Cola. Um, and she talks about how she sort of drank Coke uh, coming up at Tuskegee, et cetera. And around the same time, there was an op-ed uh, article in the New York Times that came out which claimed that Coca-Cola was a racist company, especially during the uh, 1920s and 30s. And I think the quote from the person was that Coca-Cola studiously ignored the black community. So in our response to that, uh, my boss at the time, Phil Mooney, actually wrote a column on uh, Coca-Cola Journey, and we actually highlighted um, Marilyn Price Hoyt's story and her history coming up with Coca-Cola. As it turns out, the same lady, she was in the picture with Martin Luther King, her family actually owned a soda fountain which sold Coca-Cola in Louisiana. And so she says, uh, Price's Pharmacies, which is the name of her uh, family's soda fountain, have been in operation in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and Los Angeles, California since 1908. So these are African-American soda fountains in those same communities that the New York Times op-ed was saying that Coca-Cola ignored. So... When we put that story out, it was a third-person take, so it wasn't like Coke trying to defend ourselves or bat down our critics. It was actually a third-person uh, story, actually, you know, telling it in our own voice about Coke being in those communities. Um, so that helped us out a lot. And also what we found is that uh, we researched black soda fountains going all the way back to 1904, and we found uh, ads for Coca-Cola in African-American newspapers. So this is an, a newspaper called The Freeman, which is a national African-American newspaper, and then there's a Coke ad right there. So again, the archives sort of supporting the company with communications um, to sort of refute the claims that came out. So we were very happy to have that conversation at the time. And as we dug deeper into our history, um, as I close, this is uh, one of our founders, Asa Candler. Um, he actually was very good friends with this gentleman right here, whose name is Dr. Moses Amos, and he was the first African-American uh, pharmacist in the state of Georgia. Um, Mr. Amos actually had one of the first pharmacies in Atlanta uh, in 1914, and he sold Coca-Cola as well. And even before that, our inventor, John Pemberton, who invented Coke in 1886, we found documentation in the archives that said that uh, Mr. Amos was actually good friends with John Pemberton as well. So this is all sort of information that we've been sharing in social media, and it's a way sort of we've been um, supporting the company's diversity mission there. Um, this is just a picture from Mr. Amos' soda fountain from 1930. You can see the guy at the back bar, and behind him you can see all the Coke advertising there. So everything that the New York Times Op-Ed was saying we have clear evidence to refute that in our archives department, so that's one way we support. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention to you all, um, some of you may have museum affiliations, but the world of Coca-Cola is our museum in Atlanta, and we really do a lot to sort of welcome international guests. And just to read a few um, lines about how we uh, approach this at the World of Coke, as a physical embodiment of all things Coca-Cola, the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta has welcomed more than one million visitors annually since its opening in 2007. 
On average, international guests account for 12 to 20 percent of our attendance. It is important that we display a broad range of international memorabilia as befits one of the world's most inclusive brands. This global representation manifests itself in our selection of art and artifacts in media, films, photography, and television advertising, as well as through the variety of international beverages offered in our sampling area. We also have printed guide maps available in eight languages, and as guests come through, uh, we also receive feedback, so if a guest is from a certain country and they don't see anything representing their country, their country, we work with the World of Coke team to make sure we get those kind of things in um, the museum. So next time they come through, they will see those. Um, and just to close, uh, another way we're sort of celebrating diversity is uh, with these bottles that we've created, which uh, celebrate the 50th anniversary of the events of 1963 and the Civil Rights Movement, so the March on Washington, et cetera. Um, so these were first produced in Birmingham right here. And um, as you leave, uh, we'll give each one of you guys one of those. But just to read um, the statement about these bottles, People across the country are coming together to celebrate a key milestone in United States history, and Coca-Cola is paying tribute in a special way. In commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement, Coca-Cola is activating a series of events, releasing a limited edition glass bottle, and providing scholarship grants to historically black colleges and universities. Through each of these activities, Coca-Cola honors a movement begun in Birmingham, which changed the world and celebrates a future of hope and equality. So that is my presentation, and at this time I'll turn it over to Tiffany. And in, in the late 1950s, boys got junior captain wings and girls got junior stewardess wings. So they don't really do that anymore. It's just wings without the titles on there. Um, and Delta's had a long-standing relationship with the military, so they've been trying to grow um, helping the military. This is one of the, my favorite ads. Hold the phone, ma'am. There's someone right behind me. So um, as Delta's growing, like, you know, as it's growing its route maps and as it's growing its business, um, the employees are starting to get together and starting to form employee networks. So the museum was founded in 1995, officially, and in the mid-2000s, um, employees started to get together and wanted to form um, employee network groups, and uh, a few of them were formed um, several years after the museum was founded. So one employee network group we have is called ABLE, and that stands, it's a, the ABLE Network on Disabilities. It stands for Advocacy, Barrier Breaking, Leadership, and Education, and it's for employees and, fam, and their families, uh, if they have someone disabled in their family, so it's kind of a support group. And um, so they work with each other and Delta to try to find ways to uh, make it more disabled friendly, and they host a lot of events in the museum. Um, last year we had Amy Copeland, um, she was the girl that had the flesh-eating virus. Um, she came to the museum to talk uh, with the ABLE group um, about her challenges and how, she, how she's overcome them. So we also had the APEN, which is the Asian Pacific Employee Network. Um, I found this ad in the archives, and I thought it was kind of interesting. It's from 1939, and it basically is letting Northwest passengers know that even though they're going to continue to be an American airline, they will have uh, Asian flight attendants on staff. So I don't know if that's PC or not. But. Um, then we had the Black Employee Network. So in the 1940s, um, African Americans uh, worked with Delta in a very limited capacity, mostly through uh, airport uh, airplane cleaning or uh, working on the ramp and cargo. Um, and that's really grown over the years. Um, the photo on the top left is Patricia Murphy. She's Delta's very first African American stewardess in 1966, and they were called stewardesses in '66. Um, and then on the bottom left is um, uh, Captain Samuel Lewis Grady, who was Delta's very first African-American pilot. Uh, excuse me, he was the first African-American captain. They, Delta also has um, the Gay and Lesbian Employee Networks called GLEN. Delta sponsors the Gay Pride Parade every year, and then we also host the Aid Atlanta Cotillion uh, at the museum. And this is a drag queen ball. 
and this is one of our employees. If you guys know David Janke, that's him. <laughs> um, Delta also has the uh, Latin American Hispanic Employee Network. So here's a, here they are with a mariachi band at one of their events at the museum. The Women's Employee Network. Now this is um, a pretty important woman in Delta's history. This is Catherine Fitzgerald. Uh, she was Delta's principal founder, Mr. Woolman. Uh, she was his secretary from the 1920s all the way up till he passed away in 1966. She was our general treasurer in the 1930s, and she actually became Delta's very first female board member in 1930. So that's really rare to have a, a female board member that early. Um, and then we have our own Rosie the Riveters and um, our pilots that are growing. So women's roles have really changed over the years too. And then the Veterans Employee Network. Now, these are all important for the museum because this is our primary customer. Um, because we are located inside the Delta World Headquarters, you actually have to go through a security checkpoint to kind of get to us. So our primary customers right now are employees, retirees, their families, and corporate visitors. And um, so we, we definitely, you know, take all of these stories about um, the international diversity, the racial diversity, the, um, you know, men's and women's roles. So we're trying to tell these stories. Um, not only do we do that through exhibits, but we also do tours and um, events. So here we are giving a tour to the head of Cathay Pacific Airline. Um, and then in 2012, for Black History Month, Delta brought in a traveling exhibit of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, it was called Flying Legends. And we and Delta hosted an event in the museum. And that's Scarlett up there. <laughs> Had to do a shout out. So in, uh, on June 28th, a uh, few months ago, um, we announced that we are doing a big renovation project for the museum. And um, this is gonna be a total overhaul for the museum. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, this is my jet covered in plastic getting ready for the become a hard hat area, which it currently is. But as part of this, these are some of the renderings. I thought I would just kind of walk you through this um, so you can see what we're kind of moving towards, but we'll be getting an, a new exterior um, air conditioning for the first time, which is great for us. Um, new entrance, new exhibits. This is kind of looking into one of the hangars here. Um, we're getting a flight simulator, which is pretty big if you are into flight simulators. Um, and then we're gonna be telling the stories of the Delta employees. So because with the renovations, we're gonna be climate controlled right now, we have to be really careful about what we put out on display because I don't have temperature, humidity control, anything like that. The hangars are basically airplane garages. So with this new renovation, we're going to be having um, light level controls and uh, temperature and humidity control. So we'll be able to expand upon um, exhibits that we've kind of done in the past. Like here's one that we've did about Nip Hill. And Nip was Delta's very first 50 year employee. Um, and this was uh, put up as part of the Black History Month celebration. So he started working in 1935 um, as a cleaner and then he worked his way up pretty much to be Mr. Woolman's right hand man. So he was, um, uh, he definitely climbed the ladder of success as far as um, Delta is concerned, and he was our first 50-year employee. So we've done other exhibits where um, here's one that talks about the Delta family and in context of propeller planes and some of the stories we were able to tell. Catherine Fitzgerald was the woman I told you about earlier who's our first female board member. And then um, James Bennett, who is actually... Um, uh, the first African-American to earn a parachute jumper license. So he was a Delta employee. So we kind of tell those stories as well. So right now we're open to the public by appointment only. So the goal of this new renovations is to be more publicly accessible. Um, right now we're open by appointment to seniors groups, select children's groups, um, disabled groups and special visitors. So we're trying to keep this public audience in mind as we go through the planning for this renovation. Um, one of the things we're working on is um, wheelchair accessibility. Um, we want to put a wheelchair lift up into the big jet that was covered in plastic. Uh, we want to 
and this is the type of wheelchair lift that we're thinking of. We're also thinking about, um, you know, appealing to visitors of different age groups. Because um, right now we are really more geared towards adults, but we're going to be having to starting to do children's programming and stuff as well, since it is a, a big section of the public. And then um, another goal that I want to do is cell phone tours in various languages because we are an international carrier. We do get a lot of international visitors uh, and international employees. So that's one of the goals in the future too. So this is my information. If you want to check out our Facebook page or anything, um, please do. And then um, I would like to get some ideas from you after we're done and we're in the Q&A section on what you might be able to help me with as far as planning for diversity in our museum. So now I want to turn this over to Scarlett Presley Brown. Um, she is the VP of Marketing for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and she's responsible for assisting in developing an overall brand approach for the center before its grand opening next year. Uh, for 13 years prior, Scarlett served as the Director of Community Relations and the VP of the Delta Airlines Foundation, which is how I know her. Um, she has received the Executive Leadership Award from the Atlanta Medical Association, the Outstanding Georgia Citizens Award. She's been named one of Atlanta's top black women of influence by ABL, the High Heels and High Places Award in the 2007 Trumpet Foundation. She's uh, received the Transportation Achievement Award from the Atlanta Urban League Guild, the Outstanding Community Service Award from the SCLC Women of Excellence and Business Award from ITC, and she's been featured on the cover of the Atlanta Tribune, Who's Who in Black America, and Business to Business Magazines. So she received her BA in Communication from Oglethorpe University, an MBA from the University of Phoenix, uh, Lean Six Sigma Green and Black Belt from Georgia State University, and international leadership training from Manchester College, Oxford, England. She's married to Wendell Brown, has five kids and three grandchildren. So Thank welcome. You. My arrows. Yep. Down. There you go. Got it. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys for, for joining us this morning. It's really an exciting opportunity for me to talk to you about the new National Center for Civil and Human Rights that's being now built in Atlanta right next to the World of Coke and the Aquarium. That particular area is going to be an incredible uh, destination for tourists, for families who want to experience Atlanta, experience history. So we're very, very excited about the National Center for Civil and Human Rights being a part of what will make Atlanta a truly great place to come. The Center for Civil and Human Rights was born out of the, uh, it was the brainchild of Dr. Joseph Lowry, his wife, Evelyn Lowry, Ambassador Young, John Lewis. They approached Mayor Franklin, Mayor Shirley Franklin, to say, we need something. We need a place, one, for the King Papers that Mayor Franklin had just bought, but also we need a place where Atlanta's history, Atlanta's heritage, and the heritage of the South comes together in a unique and innovative way. Thus, the Center for Civil and Human Rights was born. The mission of the center is to explore the universal search for human existence as well as for civil rights. One of the things that was concluded very early on is that this center need not just focus on civil rights, but also human rights because they're so closely intertwined. So what we're doing in the center is bringing it all together in one place so that the next generation understands their responsibility to give back. One of the key factors in creating the center was finding a place for it. Um, Jamal mentioned Mr. Pemberton. The area where the center will be built is called Pemberton Place. That is what that area is called. And it is uh, a gift from Coca-Cola. So the center is being built on land that we did not have to purchase. It was Coca-Cola's way of saying, yes, we want to participate in this project. And as such, this was one of the prime pieces of property in, in the city of Atlanta. We're in the heart of Atlanta. And Coca-Cola donated that particular pro property. The objective here is to teach future generations the importance of valuing freedom, both civil and human. The center will be an epicenter for growth for Atlanta. 400,000 people will visit the center on an annual basis. We anticipate there will be a $50 million impact to Atlanta's economy, creating 600 jobs. The area at the very top is green space. Now, we can't go out there and hang out, but it is reflective of our, our desire to uh, respect and promote environmental sustainability. 
We plan to open in 2014 in May, Labor Day weekend. I'm sorry, that's Memorial Day weekend. Some of the things that you will find in the center will be the MLK pa papers uh, that were very, that was very, very important that we were able to have those there because Atlanta was Dr. King's home and his home base. There will be lots of human rights exhibits. You will uh, be able to observe a lot of social media there, a lot of interactive activity. There will be a broadcast studio. There will be opportunities to host events there. There will be an event space there that will have capacity, I think, for about 450 people. You can host conferences there. Maybe AL a a can come there. <laughs> The center will be three floors, first, second, and third floor, and as you will see, the top floor will host the human rights galleries, second floor, the civil rights in the lobby, and then the very bottom floor will be dedicated to Dr. King and the King Papers for a lot of reasons. One, because of the kind of space that we have to have to accommodate the King Papers. They are very, very, very sacred, and there are certain requirements to be able to maintain their longevity. The minute you walk into the center, your experience will be interactive and immersive. You will be able to feel the period, and you will be able to feel the experience of going back and understanding history as we've read about in our textbooks. The only space in the world where the King Papers will be housed will be on that bottom level where you will find many of Dr. King's messages, and this is where the King Papers will be. They will be changing all the time because there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of papers. And it's, you don't think that you'd be enamored with something like that, but when you see a program where he's attended an event and he's taking notes and those notes are scribbled on the outside of the, of the, of the menu or the brochure that was given, it's pretty special to see where his mind was and the kinds of depth that his thought process uh, engaged. In addition, you will have the experience of what it was like to be African-American or white during the Civil Rights Movement. You will go through an area, one will be labeled white, one will be labeled colored, and it will reflect the period of time that we were separate but not equal. It um, will be a reminder of how diverse our, how not diverse our, our country was and how this was a, an approved way of living. This was an accepted way of life, which Dr. King and many others felt was unfair based on our constitutional rights. You will be introduced to everything that was going on in the urban South, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. We will talk about a period of time when the movement catches fire, when things were happening, like the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, like the period of time when the those who were fighting for voting rights, those who were campaigning and holding sessions where you were being taught how to register to vote were being killed and murdered. Periods of time that, that you could not walk down the street as an African-American and feel that you were safe. All of those articles, all of that paraphernalia and memorabilia will be captured in this particular area. Then we will talk about the March on Washington, and you will be able to immerse yourself into what it must have felt like to be at the Lincoln Memorial amidst 200,000-plus people and hear Dr. King deliver his I Have a Dream speech. We will also be able to reflect on the day that he was assassinated. You will hear many of the tapes that were made, the newscast, the messaging. You will be able to read the papers. You will be able to hear live reports from individuals and what they were doing and what they were experiencing on the day that Dr. King was assassinated. And then we will move into human rights and talk about the kinds of things that we oftentimes take for granted. When we think of human rights, we don't necessarily understand just how, how we each impact decisions that are made about human rights, oftentimes that are across the country. I'm going to talk about who, like me, is threatened in just a minute, but when we eat chocolate, when we buy diamonds, we're not thinking about where those items come from. 
but so often the decisions we make about the very purchases that, that we make every day, we're not thinking about where that came from. We would be very surprised to know oftentimes that that precious stone that we bought for ourselves, for our mother, for our significant other, that particular diamond was mined by little kids via child labor, via conditions that we would consider atrocities, yet we're supporting those kinds of activities because we're simply not aware. Understanding what's happening in other parts of the country and how some of our products are coming to us really does help us understand that we need to know a little bit more about human rights. The, one of the exhibits that I find most intriguing is the one called Who Like Me is Threatened? And this is an opportunity for you to go in, you're going to enter into this, this module, you're going to put in those characteristics that make you who you are, your gender, your age, your profession, your religious affiliation, and then an image will come up of a person who has all of those same characteristics but they're being persecuted for those, those very basic rights that we take for granted. We will experience the kinds of things that we basically only read about and hear about and come to the realization that on the other side of the world, or maybe not so far away, people are not experiencing the same kinds of freedoms that we're taking for granted on a daily basis. You will also be able to go into a module that we call the hairdryer and you will be able to have an experience because this comes down over you, not totally for those who are claustrophobic, only half your body is in there, but you're able to key in a period of time that you want to go back and reflect on, whether it's the Holocaust, Tiananmen Square, the Civil Rights Movement, Rwanda, whatever experience or whatever piece of history you want to reflect on, you're able to go into this suspended mini theater, key in the period of time you want to reflect and you will have that experience. And it's almost like being there. It'll be a truly interactive experience. This is one of our most prized, innovative possessions that we're really, really proud of. And then finally, you're able to go into a shared accomplishments gallery where you're able to reflect on your experiences. You're able to truly understand how civil rights and human rights are linked. And also will give you an opportunity to assess how you personally can become more involved and made more aware of the kind of issues that are afflict, affecting each of us globally. So the Civil and Human Rights Center was created to inspire individuals to understand what their history was like and to help future generations to know the kinds of responsibilities they need to assume going forward. It will be state-of-the-art it will reflect the innovations of the 21st century and beyond. We're hoping that young people will come and learn to appreciate the learnings that we have, the learnings that we have gathered from our past. And we hope that businesses will come to appreciate what we have to offer at the center as well. There are opportunities for businesses to host conferences to be able to reflect on their methods, their diversity initiatives, and their labor relations. So we, we, we hope that it will be all that they have hoped for in some shape, form, or fashion that we're making come to fruition. In addition to what we have at the center, if you've been in Hartsville-Jackson Airport in the International Concourse, we are now set up there as a store, as part of the um, New York Times bookstore, and there you're able to get books that reflect both civil and human rights. So please, if you're in the airport, go to Concourse E and visit our store. Uh, we get 5% of the proceeds that come from both Goldberg's, the New York bookstore, and our store as well. We get 100% of the proceeds from our store, but percentages from Goldberg's and the New York um, bookstore. These are our sponsors. These are those who have already gotten on board to say, yes, the center is something that we realize is going to be um, integral to our community. They understand the impact it can have on their businesses, and we're very proud of the fact that we're going to be there to provide these kinds of services as it relates to diversity training and diversity building in corporate America. This is our website, so I encourage each of you to visit us, and when you're in Atlanta, please come see us and patronize us. As I said, we open in May of next year, Memorial Day weekend. And that first week, I'm pretty sure the, the fees are going to be zero. 
at least that's what I'm campaigning for. Just know that's what I'm campaigning for. But even after we open, uh, the tickets for adults will be $12, and children will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of that. So we look forward to having you there. Thank you. We'd like to open up. Um, this is our this is our contact information. If you want to write any, any of it down, so we'd like to open up uh, co some conversation. We really only have a few minutes, but um, I'm going to take a I'm going to hog this for a minute <laughs> because so part of the project that I'm working on is we're, you know as I said the museum at the at the Delta Museum is undergoing renovations and we're going to be working on we're starting to think about diversity in ways that are not just telling the stories that we've got in the archives, but in the physical uh, layout of the museum, in what we can do with cell phone tours and stuff like that. And I wanted to know if you guys have, uh, like, if you have any advice or things that we're not thinking about as far as trying to reach a diverse audience. Um, anything that you kind of wish that your museum had that it doesn't? Because <laughs> right now we're in this planning phase where we're starting to move forward, but there's still time to, like, get stuff in there. <laughs> so, um, One of the things you didn't mention to the audience is that there will be a simulator Yeah, we will have um, a flight simulator. Now, the flight simulator is kind of interesting because it's not going to be handicap accessible because it you know, unfortunately, to be a pilot, you really can't be, but we will be appealing more towards the young and the old um, with that uh, simulator as part of the exhibits. Um, as I mentioned, we are looking at, we're going to have wheelchair accessibility to get up to the big jet that we've got and also a second floor level. Um, I want to do stuff like the international cell phone tour, stuff like that, but I just didn't know if there was any advice or suggestions that you guys might have that... Um, I can take with me. <laughs> so, and if not, that's fine. Um, so since we are right at time for the session to end, um, on your chairs you should have some yellow piece of paper, and that's got um, a survey on there. And when you're done with that, you can uh, just leave it on that center table right there by the um, projector. There's also some information about the uh, Civil and Human Rights Center that's on your chair. I've got brochures about the Delta Museum up in front. And don't forget to come and get your special Coke bottle. <laughs> so, and thank you guys for coming and bearing with us through the first part of this session. <laughs> All right. Thank you.